We are all murderers. None of us will see heaven. Guaranteed. Is that true? You might think, well, you know, that, that probably is true, and I've never murdered anyone, and, and so therefore, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Problem with that is, when Jesus starts defining the law and really elucidating upon the Ten Commandments, he doesn't stop with the act of murder. Remember, if you happen to have read that, one of the things he says, it's not a matter of murdering, it's a matter of hating. It's not a matter of just committing adultery, it's a matter of lusting. And he goes through a whole bunch of things. It's not just the act, it's the spirit. And therefore, the bottom line, we don't have a prayer unless God does something. I got good news for you this morning. God did something. And the Bible tells us about that because it says what, what man could not do, God did by sending his own son, Jesus, to die for our sins and to be, rose, or to be raised again. Got kind of an interesting and kind of a, I hope it's interesting at least, but a very unusual type of message for you this morning, a little talk here. Um, a very short sermon, but a very long closing illustration, okay? So, so hang with me here for a minute on that, and it's, it's an illustration that's pretty dear to my heart. I love biographies, and I just got through reading about this guy, and I just, I said, I, I gotta share this with somebody. And it just goes perfectly with what we're talking about uh, this morning. But if you saw the little card or anything else, you know that our, our theme today is, Will God forgive me no matter what I've done? Whether I be the murderers or whether I be something else or a horror, whatever, whatever, whatever horrible sin looks like to you. Will, will God forgive me no matter what I've done? Or, I like to put it this way, is there a statute of limitation on sin? And, uh, you know, that would be good if there were. I'm going to talk about that and all under this, this framework of the totality of God's forgiveness. And I'm going to show you three very simple things. And I'm going to tell you kind of a long story. I'll make it as short as I can for you about one particular guy. And, and, and then we're going to sing a song or we're going to hear a song song that, that, he, uh, that he wrote. And I'll tell you more about that when we get there. But the first thing is very simple. Will God forgive me no matter what I've done or, or what is the totality of God's forgiveness? And the first thing is very simple. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. But it goes like this. God's forgiveness involves the sins that we've committed. God's forgiveness involves the sins that we've committed. There is a little, little verse or a little, you know, phrase or scripture in, in uh, scripture passage, I guess, would be the right term, in uh, the book of Psalms. And I want to show it to you. It's Psalm 103. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. The paraphrase that I like to use, the message puts it like this. As far as sunrise is from sunset, he has separated us from our sins. One of the things, and maybe people realize it, maybe they don't, I don't know. One of the reasons that Easter is to be joyful is because it is a reminder and hopefully more than an annual reminder that Jesus came to take my sins away. And he does that as far as the east is from the west. And those are a lot of sins. And those are sometimes repeated sins. And those are sometimes sins that come back maybe the next day, maybe the next year, maybe five years later. Which brings me to the second 
thing that I want you to see. God's forgiveness involves the sins that we will commit. Not just the sins that we have committed, but the sins that we will commit. This is very important. This was a big deal in the Reformation. This was a huge, a huge argument. Let me show you, uh, just, there's several things we could go to, but let me just take you to uh, Colossians. We were dead because of, uh, excuse me, yeah, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. There's a Greek word there for all. The Greek word is, I don't want to beat you up with Greek or anything, but the Greek word is panta, which means encompasses everything. And here, here was a little bit of the rub during the Reformation. We'll read the rest of the verse in a moment. Oh, let's read it and I'll come back and tell you about it. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. And, and, and what, what the apostle is trying to get us to understand here is that they put certain crimes on Jesus. If you saw the passion, you saw this, you know, they, he, he blasphemy and so forth because he was the king and of, of the Jews and, and he claimed to be that and was and so forth. And uh, they, they nailed that. And, and what the apostle is trying to communicate, we believe when we understand his writing and you get into it a little bit, is that when he went to the cross, in a sense... He took the sins of rich, I'll use me, uh, you can put, use yourself. He took my sins and nailed them to the cross, every one of them. Now, here was a little bit of a rub during the Reformation, and even since that time, unfortunately. And the rub was this, that some people said, well, when you come to faith at that moment, whether you're 8 or whether you're 80, then God has taken care, uh, taken care of all the sins up until that point. But from that point on, you have to pay for your own sins. How does that work? You know, what am I going to do for that? You know, you going to take, draw blood? Well, that's why Jesus shed his blood for me. Because that was representative of life. Without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, Hebrew tells us. And, and, and you get into that whole thing, and if you saw the passion, um, uh, passion of the Christ, the new movie, I mean, it's, it's a bloody thing, and people say, I don't, I don't get this whole thing. You go through the whole Old Testament. And you, all the Levitical stuff and all, and Deuteronomy and so forth and all these, the guilt sacrifices and the blood sacrifices, all the, for any kinds of sin. What was the point of all that? Well, there's a lot of things and I won't go into all of it, but one of the things is this. Sin is a terrible, terrible thing. It breaks apart people. It causes people to kill. It causes people to maim. It causes people to have heartache. It causes people to experience all kinds of horrible, horrible things. And God's making a point to say, when you miss the mark, and that's what sin means, missing the mark. When you miss the mark, it's a terrible thing. People rape, pillage, and murder because of sin. And you need to understand it's a horrible thing. And it hurts people. That's the thing I think we forget. We talk about sin in this sort of grandiose kind of way. It hurts people. It destroys people. It destroys lives. And God says, the penalty for that is another life. And you don't have to do that, Rich. I'm going to send my son to do that for you. And that's what he's done. And that's such a wonderful thing to think about. And it wasn't just the sins that I committed up until I was about eight years old when I gave my life to Christ. 
I mean, because, you know, by the time I was eight years old, I, there's one of my friends here. I won't mention his name because he's here this morning. And, and he comes out of a Catholic background. And he told me about his first confession. And he didn't know what to confess. <laughs> and he was like eight or nine or something. So he started confessing you know, adultery and all kinds of stuff. Because <laughs> he didn't know what else to confess. You know. So when you... When you, when you <laughs> And I love the attitude, though, even though, I mean, maybe he was thinking, I don't know, but I don't want to comment on him. But anyway, uh, for many of us, maybe he was commenting of something that might happen from the future for some of us could do that. But the point is this. Does that mean, then, if you come to Christ at this particular age, 8 or 10 or 20 or 30, and then, therefore, after that, everything you commit, you've got to kind of go through some sort of rigmarole or something to, to get forgiveness? What else can you do? You're a fallen human being. There's nothing else you can do. That's why when you understand this verse, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. Somebody says, yeah, but Rich, if you teach that and talk about that, that means people will want to go out and do whatever they want to do and say, oh, I got God's forgiveness. That's not been my experience to the person who's experienced God's grace. They desire to please God. They don't say, well, I can go do whatever I want to do. They say, I want to please God. Much like you would want to please a loving father or mother who loves you. And, and I remember in my life, and uh, a couple of rebellious years that I had, and I've had more than that, but in particular, um, right after I, I left home and I was going to school and so forth, and a couple of times I kind of got in some situations that I shouldn't have been in, and I knew it. And I remember a couple of times the thought of what would my father think? Not my heavenly father, my earthly father. And it just grieved me. Because I knew my dad loved me and he treated me good and he, and he did a whole lot for me. And, and, all that. and that just grieved me. Now, if we take that, and it, maybe if you had a, a great father, maybe you have had this same experience. In a whole nother dimension, a whole nother series of thoughts, when you think about that with God, you don't want to just go out and just blaspheme the name of Christ or of your heavenly father by how you live. So that's not, I don't think that's an argument. If someone has that attitude, they don't understand grace. They don't understand what it means to have God's love in their life. Because the things, and even today, when I sin, notice I said when, not if. Even today, when I sin, and many times it's in the form of thoughts or it's in some other form or the form of some words, uh, somebody saying something to somebody or something that I shouldn't say. I mean, it's never, oh, I got forgiveness, it's okay. Is oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I hate that about myself. But I thank you for your grace. Because I need it. Every day. So, that's what he's talking about here. He forgave all our sins. Past, present, and future. That's why you don't need to say, need to do, need to be about, well, I got to do this. I got to do that because of the sins that I committed. You don't do anything except come to Christ continually. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Thank you that you... All the Bible tells us is in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One of the, we're, most of you know we're in the process of restoring the Summit Opera House. And in the process, I have a great time with some of the guys, and some of them are still kind of figuring out what it's like to work with a pastor and, and some of the, Steve and some of us and all that, and we're around with them a lot of time. One of them asked me, he let a few, uh, let a few words fly. <laughs> 
And um, he said, hey, is that a, he said to me, my friend said to me, uh, is that a hell thing? And I said, um, you know, it would be, except I've got a better solution for you. And I knew his background, really. I, he said, what is that? And I said, you've come to Renaissance eight straight Sundays. You'll be absolved of everything, you know. And then, and then we laughed about that. And later on, I had the time. I said, I hope you realize I was just kidding, okay, because sometimes we think that way. Seriously, not in a joking way. Sometimes we think that way. And, of course, that doesn't work. And we know that. Let me show you the third thing, very simple, and I want to get into my story here. God's forgiveness involves a sin we will commit. So we praise God. Hello. We praise God for the wonderful kindness He has poured out on us because we belong to His dearly loved Son. He is so rich in kindness that He purchased our freedom through the blood of His Son, and our sins are forgiven. So, it involves the sins we've committed, it involves the sins we will commit, and, and lastly, it involves the sins we don't even know we're committing. You say, what are you saying? It involves the sins we don't even know we're committing. Real quickly, Colossians 2.13, back to there. We, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. I'm interested in that last phrase again. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. You know, we can be, and there's all kinds of words for this. They, some people try to talk about sins of omission and sins of commission. And, you know, I, I can't define omission and commission, so it's, it's, I've got to get something simpler for me, all right? Uh, and, and the simple, simple fact is this. Sometimes we can be involved in things that we don't even realize because of our culture. That's not right. I'll give you an example, and I'm going to give you an example from the story I'm going to tell you in just a second. This guy was a slave trader, and I'm going to show you some things of what, what happened in his life. But he went for 20 years after committing his life to Christ, 15 to 20 years, before he ever came to grips with the fact that slave trading was sin. You say, huh? The 18th century gentleman, English gentleman, which he was, that was very accepted in their culture. I mean, I'll take you back, and I don't understand that. I got to tell you, I don't understand that. You go back further. You go back into the Old Testament. You get into polygamy. Was people say, how could how could David have so many wives, and how could Solomon have so many wives and still have God's approval? They had. We're not talking about divorce. We're talking about three or four wives, four or five hundred wives at a time, okay? And concubines or cucumber vines, as my friend used to say. Um, that's what we're talking about, right? How can that be? Again, that was a cultural thing. Was it okay with God? No, it was never okay with God. He always intended one husband, one wife. He never included, he never, he never blessed polygamy in terms of, you know, being married to several wives. It's not usually the other way around, having several husbands. Um, but it was part of their culture. And, and you know what? God forgave them of that, even though many of them didn't, never really came to grips with that. You say, I don't understand that. You know what? A hundred years from now, People may be sitting around somewhere talking about those wonderful folks at Renaissance Church. And they say, you know, they were great people and they loved God and they had that pioneer spirit to start a church and, and, and do some cool things. But I'll never understand why they didn't deal with their hedonism. I'm not saying you're hedonistic. I'm not, I mean, if you're guilty, I'm guilty, okay? We all may have a degree of that that maybe we're not dealing with exactly the honor. I don't know. Maybe it's materialism. Again, I'm not, I don't think that's the case, but it may be. 
I don't think I'm materialistic. I don't think you're materialistic because you have stuff. But maybe a hundred years from now, people will look back on us and say, hey, they were great Christians, but you know, they had that one problem. They were just a little hedonistic. I don't know that for sure. If I thought that was the case, I'd change my lifestyle. I don't think that's the case at this point in time. My point is this, though. Sometimes certain things creep into the culture. and all of us, I mean, if you had confronted the average 18th century gentleman, quote-unquote, about slavery at the time, he would have said, well, that's well accepted. You should take good care of yourself. How can you think such a thing? I don't know, but they did. Was it a sin? You bet it was a sin. Did God forgive them? He forgives us of everything, as horrid as it might be. Understanding that, three things, real quick. God will forgive me no matter what I've done. That involves the sins we've committed. That involves the sin we will commit. That involves the sins we may not even realize that are part of our lives right now. Whatever that may be. Let me tell you about this guy. He was born in 1725. He was born, his mother died at age seven. For those first seven years, she raised him strongly. And at that time, what was a derivative of the Puritan church, less than 1% of the people in England at that time were a part of that. And, um, and she raised him under the Reform Catechism, under, uh, under teaching from the Bible and so forth, and how he should live and how he should be. Between his, his mother died at age seven. Between ages 11 and 17, he accompanied his father on five different sea voyages because that's what his father was. He was a sailor. And that was one of the main industries of the time. And they would sail all around the world. Um, between ages 11 and 17, when, it, when that conflict between him began to hit of how he should live the way his mother taught him, according to the Bible, and the ways that he was learning on a ship at that time, with a bunch of sailors on that ship. So, that's been going on. So, he's, he's trusted Christ. He's come to faith somewhere in his childhood. He reaches age seven, and his mother dies, and from up until the time that he's uh, 17 years old, he's basically learning some of the ways of the world. He's 17 years old, 1742. A group called Royal Africa Company offered him a huge job because his dad was an officer in that company. And here's how it went. He was to go to Jamaica with Liverpool ship owner and become a slave overseer, which was a status symbol at that time. That would eventually lead to being a planter's estate. From there, most people believed, and certainly his father had it all figured out, he would be a, a, a would possibly be a seat in Parliament in England. Something happened along the way. What happens to many of us? He fell in love. And this woman named Mary Catlett um, was a woman he chose, or he fell in love with, and as a result, he chose to miss that first big opportunity on that ship that was bound for Jamaica uh, that his dad had arranged for him to do. He missed it because he wanted to spend more time with this wonderful young lady who he thought he wanted to marry at that point. His dad decided to teach him a lesson, so he forced him uh, to sail on a months-long sail or uh, voyage as a common sailor from Liverpool all the way to Venice. During that time, 17-year-old guy, he's with a bunch of sailors, he's starting to learn the ways of the world. And from whatever, wherever he was before, he has fallen literally off the wagon. 
so to speak. Because now he is experiencing the depravity of sin in ways that he had never thought of or heard of before. After leaving Venice, he has great remorse. And he, as they are beginning to set sail, has what we might call sort of a personal revival. He begins to see the waywardness of his ways. And he decides again, just a few days later, after the whole Venice adventure, to start living for God. Well, that lasted until they hit the land again. <laughs> and they, they have landfall, as they call it, and, and um, that was back in England. And uh, he, again, starts exploring some of the depths of depravity, but it also, in the process, goes to visit this woman that he thought he was in love with or think he's in love with. And as a result, he wants to spend more time with her, and he misses his next voyage, again, choosing to do that because he wants to spend more time with this woman. What is it about you women that you cause us to do these things? What is that? I'm just kidding. Okay? Um, it's because you're wonderful. That's what it is. And uh, so anyway, he misses that assignment. He was going to be an officer. He was going to be an officer on that deal. Okay? Um, he's overstaying his visit to this Mary lady. So now he's 19 years old. The funny thing, funny peculiar, not funny haha that happened, is as he was going to her house and to spend more time with her, he is what we would call shanghai which was very legal in those days. He was grabbed by some guys and forced to serve on a ship called the HMS Harwich. Um, things went from bad to worse there. He was treated as a lowly crewman. He began to get a new belief, which was taught to him by one of the guys particularly named in his biography on that ship. His new, his new belief was God was a phantom invented by killjoy religious types. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and pass into, extin- ex- we pass into extinction. So he explored new depths of depravity and even began to influence the one guy in his life, who was also a sailor, who also called himself a Christian, he began to influence him, persuaded him to just go right along with him. It's always nice to be able to have somebody join you in those pursuits if you particularly have a twinge of guilt or a tinge of guilt. Well, some coincidental, quote-unquote coincidental things happened. He was transferred to another, another vessel, but for two years, after being shanghai for those two years, he is lower than the lowest slave on a slave ship. And he suffered illness, starvation, exposure, and ridicule as the master's black mistress used to have him clean up after all the slaves. So all of a sudden now he's lower than the slaves. The people that he had gone to try to enslave just a few years before this. He is then found by an associate of his father who's still a shipping magnet, for lack of a better term, and he manages to get him on another ship which is bound back for England, because this was supposed to be a five-year a five-year voyage. Um, this ship is called the Greyhound. It sets sail from Newfoundland from uh, from Brazil. Okay, so it's, now he's ending up down in Brazil, and he's, and he's headed now for a Newfoundland, again, a slave ship. Um, he impresses the older men on that ship with his just total, total depravity and actions and language and things that he does, and during a drunken brawl one night ends up overboard. He's rescued. But something then happens that is uh, kind of impressive. And the reading material on the ship, and again, he's still pretty low, but he's high enough now where he can at least have something to read. 
he finds this book by Thomas Kempis called The Imitation of Christ. You can still get it today. It's a great book. He starts reading that, and some of those, some of those little tinges of, confront, of, con, of con, conscience begin working in his heart, in his mind. Um, and then on March 21st, 1748, he's 23 years old, the most violent storm that he had ever been in hits somewhere off the coast of North America. Probably could have been not you know, too far from, from, from these parts. He awoke to see another crew member swept into the sea. Now, the storm lasted for days. He was convinced he was going to die. He had to tie himself to the mast to keep from being swept away. Um, he was convinced this wasn't gonna, he wasn't going to make it. The ship began to take on water. There's all kinds of problems. Um, so he breathes his first prayer in years. God help me. What he prayed. Um, and then he went on to write later that he didn't think God would ever forgive him for all that he had done. This time, though, things seemed to really change in his life. Because they didn't go under and they didn't die. He didn't die. And uh, they managed to make it to Newfoundland and managed to make it back to England. Got back to England and this was the real experience that he looks at as when his faith became real to him. But even then, when he got back home into England, it began to... The old patterns, again, I count it the fifth time, they begin to reemerge. And he goes through a year of dealing with some of those same old, destructive, sinful habits. He ends up, gets on another slave ship, which was the main thing they did in those days. He ends up in the same place where he had been in captive a year before, which was somewhere around Sierra Leone. And he gets deathly sick. He crawls literally to an alone part of the island, and he begins to pray. God help me. God help me. It's too much. I've committed too many sins. This is what he said. Without what a poor creature I am in myself, this is, this is, he wrote this many years after this. What a poor creature I am in myself, incapable of standing a single hour without continual fresh supplies of strength and grace from the fountainhead. 1750 comes, that's the two years later. He makes it back to England. He didn't die. He marries the lady that he had met several years before. And he would never go back on his faith again. But I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear it good. I don't understand it, but it's the biography of this man. He would captain two more slave ships, three voyages in four years, accepting slaving as an honorable profession, as did the rest of polite 18th century society. So now he's supposedly living for God, and he's still slaving. How do you do that? He did it, as did a whole bunch of other people. 1754 rolls around. He meets a guy by the name of Andrew Clooney. He was the first Christian friend that he had ever truly met who sailed on a ship. He begins to talk to him about what it means to follow Christ. He begins to talk to him about slavery and the enslavement of people. So finally... And here he is, at what age now? Here he is, almost 30 years old, 
And now he's beginning to rethink this whole thing of slavery, huh? Finally? 1755, he hears a great preacher. Maybe you've read about him in history. George Whitfield preach in London. 1756, he's 31 years old. He begins preparation to, to his, for his education because he's deciding he wants to enter the ministry. Eight years later, he would be ordained to enter the ministry in Olney, England. Um, 1785, he's 60. A guy by the name of William Wilberforce visits his home to learn from him. That's a great name. Wilberforce would later champion the cause of making slavery illegal in England. He begins to study at this man's feet. It's an amazing story. 1788, he is asked by uh, that time, I think, uh, by William Pitt to testify before uh, one of the one of the subcommittees of Parliament on the horrors of slavery. Now he's pushing 60. 1807, he dies. Slavery is abolished in all of England's colonies the same year, 1807. It would be 1834 before the Abolition of Slavery Act passed Parliament, instituted by a guy by the name of William Wilberforce. Now, look at that story. And I want to tell you something. Here's a guy, think of those things I said. God forgives, God's forgiveness involves the sins we've committed. We're not talking about getting drunk. We're not, we're not talking about a night on the town. We're talking about a guy who enslaved other human beings. I, I, I don't know. I can't think of too many sinful activities that I would consider lower. I can't think of any, frankly. God's forgiveness involves the sins we've committed. God's forgiveness involves the sins we will commit. God's forgiveness involves the sins we don't even know we're committing at the time. It took him 15 to 20 years to realize this is wrong. But we serve a God who loves us and who forgives us. And I want to pray right now. And as I do that, I'm going to ask the band to come up. Because I want us to hear the song, the words that he wrote later on. And as they're doing that, let's just pray. Lord, we are thankful that we serve a God who forgives us of some of the most despicable things that we can possibly ever think of. And Lord, you know each person here. You know each life. You know what's going on in each life. And you know, Lord, that there are people here who probably are still living in the past for some past sin or sins. Maybe it was something they just considered horrible. Maybe it's something they're not sure if it was that bad, but they know something was wrong about it. I don't know, Lord, but you know each, each heart. You know each person. And I would ask that the Spirit of God would work in each life. And would cause each one of us to realize, Lord, that it is in you, that it is in Jesus, that we have forgiveness. Never to be visited again with those sins. We can have guilt. We don't have to. We can revisit it in our mind. We don't have to. Because, Lord, we know as far as the east is from the west, our sins have been separated from us. And, Lord, we know, though, it begins with this day that we celebrate as Easter the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It begins as we stop and say, Lord Jesus, I want you, I want to accept your forgiveness for my life. Some of these things I've committed I know about. Some of these things that might be a part of my life I'm not too sure about. But Lord, your forgiveness is complete, total, complete. And we thank you for that. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to 
go through the motions or some rigmarole of trying to get it. It's yours, and it's free, and it's for all of us. For some of us, Lord, that might be just the beginning of saying, right here, right now, Lord, right here, I want to do that. For some of us, Lord, it's just going to be coming back to you again and say, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you continue to provide for my very needy life every day. So, Father, we thank you for that. We commit these things to you. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Now, as they sing this song, I didn't tell you the guy's name. Guy's name's John Newton. Same guy that wrote these words Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Listen to the words, the rest of the words of this song, and think about this life that experienced God's forgiveness. <laughs>